This is Michael Drake, Chancellor of the University of California, Irvine. And whenever I get the urge to hear the voice of independent music, I tune in to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine or over the web at KUCI.org. The opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily represent those of the management of KUCI or the UC Board of Regents. For more information about this show, go to KUCI.org. Good morning, everyone. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the July 30, 2013 edition of Ask a Leader. Today we have UCI Law School Professor Rick Hasen and UCI Political Science Professor Louis DiCipio regarding the Supreme Court ruling on the Voters' Rights Act and mainly the state's recent moves subsequent to that. The next half will be Edward Randolph of the California Public Utilities Commission. He'll talk about the San Onofre plant and ratepayers related and unrelated issues. Don't go away now. Be right back after a short break. Once upon a summertime, if you recall, we stopped beside a little flower stall. A bunch of bright forget-me-nots was all I'd let you buy me. Once upon a summertime, just like today, we laughed the happy afternoon away and stole a kiss in every street cafe. You were sweeter than the blossoms on the tree. I was as proud as any girl could be As if the mayor had offered me the key To Paris Now another winter time has come and gone The pigeons feeding in the square But I remember when the Vespers chime You loved me once upon a summer time Oh, that Blossom Deary, that was it's about summertime. And now it's about time to go and really... Letter rip with the Voters' Rights Act. Back, welcome back to the show. The aftermath of the Supreme Court ruling concerning the Voting Rights Act is playing out not just in Texas, where the challenge to portions of the act became the case heard by the Supreme Court. It's right up to this very hour. That's a good thing today. We have on Ask a Leader, um, Rick Hasen and uh, Louis DiCipio. That uh, Rick Hasen is the UCI Law School professor and Lewis is UCI Political Science professor. Rick Hasen, the Chancellor's Professor of Law and Political Science at UCLA professor. He's nationally recognized expert in election law and campaign finance regulation, and is co-author of a leading case book on election law. You may have recently heard him on NPR or seen his recent editorial in the New York Times concerning the Voting Rights Act changes. Hasen, 
um, Hassan, I'm sorry, has also written the oft-quoted election law blog, and we'll make sure you know about that as a reminder at the end of the interview. His newest book, The Voting Wars, From Florida 2000 to the Next Election Meltdown, that was in anticipation of 2012, uh, was recently published. Rick Hassan earned his B.A. from UC Berkeley and his law degree and mass, uh, his um, Master's of Arts and Ph.D. from UCLA. After law school, uh, Hassan clerked for the Honorable David R. Thompson, the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, and worked as a civil appellate lawyer at the Encino firm Horvitz and Levy. He joined the UC Irvine School Law faculty in July 2011, just two short years ago. He's a faculty member of the UC Irvine Center for the Center of Democracy. My other guest is Louis DeCipio, professor, as I said, of UCI's political science department and Chicano Latino studies, and is also a contributor to, to the Center for Democracy, and whom you may have also heard on various NPR outlets. His interests are in ethnic politics, Latino politics, immigration, naturalization, United States electoral politics, among many other publications, is his Building America One Person at a Time, Naturalization and Political Behavior of the Naturalized in Contemporary U.S. Politics. Louis DeCipio earned his Bachelor of Arts at Columbia and his Master's and Ph.D. at the University of Texas at Austin. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thank you. Well, we'll first address the general before getting to the specific, because there's plenty of general and there's plenty of specific. Um, access to the political process, it's up for grabs all, all around America. First, quickly, I'll just try to recap the import of the recent Supreme Court ruling in legal terms and political terms. It essentially invalidates a critical formula in the Voting Rights Act, Section 4, that determined which states, nine of them, most of which are in the South, and the jurisdictions received extra scrutiny in the passing the new voting laws. The court effectively neutered Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, which has been one of the most effective tools in protecting voting rights for nearly half a century. Now Section 5 doesn't seem to apply anywhere, so we're going to break some of that down, what's left of this. And as I said in the introduction, not just Texas, but North Carolina, Mississippi, Pennsylvania, Alaska are now, they are on the move, putting some restrictions on voters. So uh, let's start with the legal aspect here with with Rick Hassan. Was the Supreme Court majority that rendered the ruling tone deaf about the challenges to states' voter ID laws leading up to the 2012 general election? Well, the issue of voter ID wasn't specifically before the court. What was before the court was the more uh, general question, or the broad question, about whether these states with this long history of discrimination in voting on the basis of race still had to submit all of their voting changes to the federal government for approval. It's a very unusual law. There aren't other laws like this that require states to get approval uh, before they enact their own laws. But uh, the Supreme Court had repeatedly upheld this law, this preclearance requirement in the Voting Rights Act, because of this long history of intransigence, uh, in, especially in the South, but not only in the South, in uh, terms of voting rules, which were making it harder for minority voters to vote. In the Shelby County case that was decided in June, uh, the Supreme Court said that Congress uh, exceeded its powers and violated state sovereignty by not revisiting the formula used to decide which states and jurisdictions should be covered. Those states and jurisdictions were initially picked based upon voter turnout in 1964, 1968, or 1972. The Supreme Court said you need to update the law so that the covered jurisdictions, the ones that have to do this, are based on current conditions on the ground. That is, 
is there currently discrimination in voting uh, on the basis of race in these places that would justify this law? Given that the law was already in effect, it would be pretty hard to show that there's race discrimination going on in these states uh, in the voting rules. That is because it was such an effective deterrent. Okay. Then, um, but the I think the operative word in your earlier part of the answer was repeatedly it was extended. But what, I mean, it was working. I mean, I, I understand how, how Ruth um, Bader Ginsburg had uh, in her dissent talked about it's working. It's that umbrella. It's keeping the rain off of the person. So um, what, I mean, the circumstances were that there weren't revisions to that consideration for supervision over those states and the other um, sections of other states? That's right. So Chief Justice Roberts, at oral arguments in an earlier case, raising the same question, analogized it to an elephant whistle. He said, I have this whistle. It keeps away the elephants. How do we ever know if it's working if there are no elephants? That is, how do we know if the Voting Rights Act is actually having a deterrent effect? Uh, uh, You know, and if you take this argument that it's working then uh, you'd never get rid of the Voting Rights Act. And so that, this was the question posed, but I think we, we know the answer because right. within two hours of the Supreme Court's uh, ruling in Shelby County, Texas announced that it was going to put into immediate effect its voter identification law, which the government had put on hold under this preclearance provision. The federal government had put it on hold. Texas said, we're putting this in place, one of the strictest voter ID laws in the country. And then North Carolina, as you mentioned uh, in your introduction, uh, just this past week, uh, uh, voted on a law, which I believe is about to be signed by the governor, right. which imposes a very strict set of uh, voting rules, the strictest set of voting rules in one package that I think I've seen in decades. And this uh, uh, set of rules would have been subject to preclearance because 40 of North Carolina's counties were subject to this preclearance requirement. Um, then this never would have gotten past the Department of Justice. And so we immediately see that Section 5 has had a deterrent effect, and uh, its, uh, its demise is going to cause those jurisdictions, at least some of those jurisdictions which were covered, to make changes which will likely make it harder for minority voters and others to be able to cast a ballot, which will be counted. Well. Uh, Louis Decipio, you want to jump in with the the, leak, the uh, political aspects of that. There was some that uh, that Rick was talking about, but what would you like to weigh in with? Well, I mean, I think if you think about some of these states that were covered by the preclearance requirements, I mean, they're the states that are sort of making the transition from reliable votes for the Republicans to reliable votes for uh, Democrats, at least at the you know, Democrats running at the national level. Um, you know, so the, so there will we will see some effect in the next several elections um, from the absence of, of preclearance requirements um, to the extent that the states can you know, follow the pattern of, of North Carolina and, and, and make uh, access to the ballot box more restrictive. Um, I think there's another political question, and that's you know, whether Congress can come up with a new Section 4, a new uh, set of standards by which uh, states would be subject to, to preclearance. And looking at uh, Congress's inability to do much of anything right now, it's sort of hard to imagine that they'll uh, come up with uh, new standards for Section 4. You know, uh, Chief Justice Roberts, I think, rather disingenuously sort of said, well, you know, Congress can take care of this if it wants, uh, recognizing probably that Congress can't do much of anything at the moment. Um, this puts pressure on the administration, particularly Democratic administrations, to do as uh, Attorney General Holder did last week, uh, to use a power in Section 3. I'm sorry we keep throwing in different parts of the Voting Rights Act, but uh, Section 3 to get a federal uh, district court uh, to declare um, a, uh, a jurisdiction having 
you know, demonstrated a sort of pattern of discrimination over time. Um, this has only been used twice, from what I understand. I think Rick would probably know the answer to that more okay. better than I do. And that's actually so. So, Attorney General Holder asked. Uh, the district court to declare Texas um, in violation of Section 3 of the Voting Rights Act. Um, it'll be interesting to see how the courts handle that, but that's sort of a stopgap kind of solution because that's you know one jurisdiction in the entire state of Texas, not the tens of thousands that actually exist on the ground and were previously subject to uh, uh, Section 5 coverage. Rick do, Rick, do you want to take up that Section 3 aspect that Lewis was just talking about? Well, I think that uh, it, I agree completely with Lewis that it's, it's going to be a very... Um, uh, or substitute for Section 5. It's oh. only going to... So the way this works is, uh, if there is a court case in which a court finds that a jurisdiction has engaged in intentional discrimination in voting on the basis of race, in violation of the 14th or 15th Amendments, if there's that kind of finding, then uh, the court has ju- jurisdiction, has the power, if it wants to, to require the state to be subject to preclearance for some period of time. And so um, the reason that the Department of Justice is starting with Texas in uh, its uh, bail-in request is because in recent redistricting litigation, a federal court in Washington, D.C. did find that Texas engaged in intentional discrimination in voting on the basis of race. So, for example, when... Texas legislators drew legislative districts. Right. They drew African-American preferred districts to cut the economic guts, those, that was the term the court used, out of those districts, which had the effect of making uh, those districts seem less successful, which would make it hard for uh, the uh, incumbent legislators to be reelected, and also hard to fundraise because you lose the base, the economic base, in your jurisdiction. So there, in Texas, there has been this finding of intentional discrimination. That's a very hard finding to get. It's hard to get a smoking gun where a court's willing to conclude that a state is engaged in intentional discrimination on the basis of race. In the North Carolina case, it's going to be very interesting because this is a very, very tough voter law. Uh, I think the law was passed not primarily to hurt minority voters, but to hurt Democrats. It was passed by a Republican legislature that's passing a whole package of uh, uh, conservative-type legislation, including abortion legislation, which... Uh, was just signed yesterday. And the voting rights uh, uh, provisions, uh, the voting uh, election uh, laws uh, passed last Thursday. Yeah, that's right. And the, the it was part of the same legislative session. Right. Uh, and it's the Department of Justice says it's going to go after North Carolina, but it's not going to be able to get North Carolina covered again under preclearance, as uh, it's trying to do in Texas unless a court is going to find some evidence of intentional racial discrimination, and that's going to be very hard to find. Even if it's there, to prove it to a court is not an easy task. And that's why uh, this uh, bail-in, or Section 3, is a very poor substitute for what we had, where all jurisdictions that were covered had to submit all of their changes uh, to uh, either the Department of Justice or a three-judge court before those changes could be put into effect. So not only does the threshold change, but also that's the timing, that it was more proactive to be able to deal with Section 4 of uh, reviewing the law prior to its enactment, but all these other sections, like Section 3, pertains to after a particular law is enacted. And that's also a different, uh, a, a steeper challenge to address and uh, once the horse is a bit out of the barn. Well, that's right. But if the horse gets out of the barn, then you can keep the barn door closed for next time is the reasoning of Section 3. 
The other tool that's available is Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which applies nationwide, and that's uh, that's also a provision that's been important in terms of uh, redistricting, but in terms of attacking things like voter ID laws, it's had much less success. And so although the president had a um, big meeting at the White House yesterday where right. he said they're going to use all the tools uh, they can to try to, to um, enforce voting rights, uh, they are somewhat hobbled by the loss of Section 5 and the fact that, I agree with Lewis, that Congress does not seem at this point likely to fix the Voting Rights Act by, for example, coming up with a new coverage formula that might apply to some jurisdictions with a current history of race well, and we we know that from just generally, I, I wouldn't say it's that they uh, they couldn't, but there's a volition here. There, um, uh, will they or won't they? When we we've seen other acts uh, that are are more mature in their preparation, like the immigration uh, uh, proposed law, that's been around since the year about 2000, and so it's been it's a long time in coming. And this this is a much newer response uh, that I it's it's hard to imagine, and that it, uh, that that uh, the disingenuous uh, comment made by uh, Justice Roberts uh, in uh, looking toward the legislative remedy to, um, you know, to be taken up after this ruling was rendered. Well, we've talked a little bit uh, generally about them, but I think I'd like for us all to break down and see what's happening with each of the states. I'm not sure everybody's been following exactly. Texas, uh, their law would now uh, implement, would require photo ID before voting, and then the new gerrymandered map of state, which uh, Rick Hassan was just talking about, it uh, does dilute m- minority voter strength. There's um, now, so it's the the effect of the Supreme Court decision is that it goes back to the three judge panel in San Antonio, and they decide what should happen next. What do you expect is going to happen there, Rick? Uh, well, uh, the, there are now a couple of questions before that court in Texas. Uh, one question is whether the redistricting maps that were just redone this past summer yes. uh, are going to create um, new uh, issues under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. So, uh, so so there's some dispute about what the court is supposed to be doing uh, because it was reviewing an old uh, redistricting plan and now they've somewhat uh, changed it. Uh, the other question that's going to be before the court is whether they should apply this bail-in, uh, whether they should grant this remedy. And there is all kinds of legal questions as to whether or not it's the right court and the right time to do that. And so that's going to play out over the next few months. And it's not clear uh, what's going to happen uh, with, uh, with that. In the meantime, uh, the, uh, th- there's a dispute as to whether Texas can put its voter ID law immediately into place with uh, opponents of it claiming that we need to wait and see if Texas gets to bail back into coverage under the Act. So uh, this, I think it's going to be maybe six months before we have some clarity as to what's going to happen with these Texas laws. Okay, and no elections right now, so it's not tying up any... There's some some time to consider that. Well, for those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, on the web at KUCI.org. And we are talking to uh, law school professor Rick Hassan uh, here at UCI and UCI's political science professor... Louis Lewis uh, Discipio and Lewis, did you want to weigh in about the the whole Texas political arena? I mean, it's it's pretty interesting. <laughs> well, absolutely. I mean, I think this is a Texas is a good example. You know, over the past decade, uh, uh, Texas saw significant population growth, um, but we 
somewhere between two-thirds and three-quarters of that growth came from uh, new Latinos in the state. Um, when the uh, Texas legislature redistricted um, after the 2010 census, uh, they discovered that uh, they could uh, construct uh, a new congressional map that had three new seats represented by non-Hispanic whites and, and one by a Latino um, and underrepresented the African-American community, which had grown in the Dallas area. So, you know, state legislatures use the power they have, as they always do, to sort of reward those are, that are in the electoral majority at the time. Um, but in the old days, there was a, a protection for that kind of uh, that kind of redistricting, and that was um, uh, the federal courts and um, both Section 2 and Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. Assuming that we're sort of in our current state after the 2000 census, I'm sorry, the 2020 census, right. I think we can realistically expect that, you know, white majorities, particularly in the South, will hold on to political power longer than they, they otherwise would have. Because of the maps, not because... I mean, the positive part of that story is that leads to an incentive to encourage participation. Um, I don't think, you know, that will be the, the sort of threat of, uh, you know, of a bad redistricting outcome is a little abstract for people, so I don't think that necessarily turns people out, but, you know, it will certainly have some positive effect on uh, minority political participation um, nationally and, and then in, in, in states, you know, with, where minority voters are concentrated. Okay, well, let's move into the, uh, there's other states. Florida, uh, five counties are going to now implement both, a law both making voter registration more difficult and cutting down on the number of early voting days. And I remember I had friends that were watching those long lines snaking around some of those, uh, let's say, uh, dis, uh, polling places that had some maybe not so swift moving uh, machinery. But uh, that, that's essential, isn't it, Lewis? This, uh, the early voting days in a state like Florida. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the United States is somewhat unique um, in having elections on a workday that is also a Tuesday. So to the extent that you can cut the costs of voting for people by either providing, you know, easy absentee voting without a lot of reasons for not, you know, not being available on election day or early voting, as many states uh, uh, experimented with, you know, in the early 2000s, um, you're likely to increase participation by irregular voters. Um, Florida tried to cut back on its, its early voting days prior to the 2012 election, and there was a sufficient amount of protest that right. some of that was was reversed by, by the Republican governor. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's going to be a continuing battleground, um, not just in Florida, but nationally. And then, you know, the jurisdictions have a legitimate concern about the cost of all of that, but uh, the question is, you know, whether the goal is to increase uh, increased turnout or to be as uh, cost-effective well, as possible. There was sort of a distribution of those resources, though, that I think was a political question in there. So, But we'll move along. Let's talk. Let's, well, uh, I think as Rick's work shows, most of these things are political questions, ultimately. Right. That's true. Well, let's take up. We've already talked a little bit about North Carolina. I want to break down uh, this state legislature passed last Thursday, a restrictive voter ID bill held, uh, whereas it might have been blocked under the Voting Rights Act, but as we said, it's moved on now with the ruling. Uh, so now uh, it, the rule that the, the law enacted would shorten early voting by a week, eliminate same-day voting, allow any registered voter to challenge another voter's eligibility. Now that's a new one. Rick, do you, Hassan, do you want to weigh in on that one? Well, you know, I, there was only one provision of the North Carolina law that I hadn't seen before, and that was one that seems to bar poll workers from working at polls after hours, and so even if there are people online at the end of the day oh. who have a constitutional right to vote, 
Um, uh, the, the idea of having poll challengers, that does exist in some states. Uh, all of these things, or many of, I should say many of these things, raise constitutional questions. And there's no doubt that there are going to be both state and federal cases brought against uh, this law. And I think part of the law is going to end up being struck down. You do. One of the things that we saw in 2012, not in North Carolina, but more generally, was that there was a backlash against some of these more restrictive voting rules. So in places like Florida, after the long lines, the Florida legislature came back and they undid some of their cutbacks on early voting and registration. Courts threw out some of the other registration right. uh, limitations. Uh, in Ohio, you had the courts throw out cutbacks in early voting as well as uh, uh, rules related to how to count provisional ballots. And so both uh, judicially and publicly, there was a kind of backlash. And I, I think that this is possible to happen in North Carolina as well. North Carolina, uh, freed from the Supreme Court, freed by the Supreme Court uh, to enact this tough law, really went for broke and, and passed <laughs> this huge package of, of laws that are going to make it harder for people to vote. I've never seen anything uh, like it in modern uh, times. Uh, but I do expect that there'll be both a judicial and a public backlash to uh, at least parts of this uh, this new law. So, Lewis, do you see this as being a kind of a everybody? Every state is tweaking uh, the judicial system. They're they're politically they're trying to see how far they can go, where the line can be drawn uh, around the polling place. And I'm not going to say in the sand that so put the most extreme uh, voting laws out there to see which ones are going to stick on the wall. Well, I think, uh, you know, uh, a lot of these uh, newly elected uh, Republican members of the legislature in these states do are looking to extremes. I mean, not just in terms of voting rights, but we've seen that um, in terms of, well, a range of issues. Um, but, you know, the, as, as Rick observes, the, there will be a backlash, at least in some cases. Um, so I don't think we should sort of paint all of the states states with the same brush. Um, so yeah, there will be certainly legal challenges, but there will also be political challenges. And in some cases, if Florida 2012 is an example, those political challenges will have some effect. But it will absorb a lot of the uh, time and energy of activists trying to fight you know, different challenges in each state. And then we have, uh, let's see, Mississippi also has an amendment to the state constitution. They're requiring back again to the voter ID. So that seems to be the, the first uh, kind of uh, matter of business and changes. And even Alaska covered by, was previously covered in the Section um, 4 in the Voting Rights Act uh, due to its past discrimination against Alaska Natives. It's poised to push ahead, too. Um, now, uh, for those you, like, we're going to be winding this down as soon as we, as we possibly can, but there's so much uh, content here. Uh, we have on with us UCI law professor Rick Hassan and UCI political science professor Louis, uh, Louis de I don't know why I say Louis Lewis all the time, DeCipio. And we're talking about the recent Supreme Court ruling on the Voters' Rights Act, uh, dealing like mostly with Section 4 and Section 5, uh, here on Ask a Leader, KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, on the web, KUCI.org. And so um, I, we have actually in our backyard uh, Anaheim, the city of Anaheim, with its uh, large elections uh um, it's yielding similar results. You know, we're seeing. Um, well, the let's, Lewis can talk about the. Uh, you know, where his work's going with the, with the Latino demographic. There, Anaheim is fifty-three percent Latino. The city council, as people know from reading up and listening about this, is it's all Caucasian. And so uh, the accommodation it was that um, with a was a three-two vote uh, a couple of weeks ago. 
on the the city council for Anaheim that they decided they were going to not uh, change the at-large aspect of the election, but they were going to assign office holders specific districts. So it really didn't address the at-large dilution problem with um, the representation of the actual ethnicities. Where is that going to go politically, Lewis? Politically or judicially? I mean, the, the, the it's pretty much a question, I think, for the courts right now. The, the city council has made what seems like a final determination. Um, my understanding is that uh, a court case, which is actually being brought under California's Voting Rights right. Act, not under the exactly. Federal Voting Rights Act, um, uh, is moving forward. Uh, uh, you know, a, a judge is, uh, is collecting information at the moment. Um, and, and the question for Anaheim is, you know, whether this at-large system that has tended to elect people only from the Anaheim Hills area, which tends to be uh, uh, less Hispanic than the rest of the jurisdiction, uh, can legitimately represent the city of Anaheim. Um, it, my sense is that's moving forward in the courts. I don't think there's really a political solution to it anymore. Well, they don't seem, the council doesn't seem to be hearing that. I think they're feeling verbally abused by what are really a massive, massive turnouts of the uh, constituents, and, uh, and I imagine the electorate, too, by the same way. So, Well, no, not the, I mean, the, the Anaheim is sort of reflective of a division between the electorate, the folks who vote, and the sort of population, right. which includes a large number of people who can't vote. So, um, you know, the, I, I don't think anybody would question that the members of the Anaheim City Council have been elected legitimately under the rules that then existed. The question is whether the Anaheim City Council should be elected on a district basis rather than on a large basis. And, Rick, where uh, do you see the, the judicial outcome going? Well, the California Voting Rights Act has so far proven very successful uh, for plaintiffs who have tried to challenge these at-large systems where they can show that uh, minority voters would have a shot at being able to have a majority in one or more districts if district lines were drawn. I haven't looked enough at the specifics of the Anaheim case to know if that one is likely to be successful, but, uh, but it, it's happening in Palmdale. It's happening in yes. different uh, medium-sized cities across California. It does raise a question, though, which is whether or not um, any of these changes that get made in the future are going to be subject to uh, new federal uh, constitutional challenges. I think, I think the next shoe that's going to drop is we're going to see challenges to other parts of the Federal Voting Rights Act, Section 2, Section 203, which protects language minorities, and also to state voting rights acts like California's, which um, is a very strong remedy for minority voters. The, the signal from the conservatives on the Supreme Court is that this is not something that uh, they're too enamored with, and uh, I worry that, that, that more laws are going to fall uh, as we move forward in the next few years. Okay. Well, gentlemen, I'm really glad that you could um, set aside some important time you're working on researching, getting classes ready for the law school year that starts, and it starts in another week or two, Rick? Uh, the 19th. Okay, right around the corner. So anyway, I really appreciate your time. We had Louis DiCipio, UCI Poli Sci professor, and Rick Hassan, UCI Law School professor. We're, we're looking at where we are with the Voters' Rights Act um, municipally at the, t- at the end here, as well as uh, nationally with so many states looking to move ahead with some, some really amazing kind of restrictions on voters and some suppression kinds of uh, movements. So, gentlemen, thank you so much for being on Ask a Leader this morning. Thank, thank you. you. So we're going to be back in just a little bit. I want to uh, bring on... 
My guest for the second half will be Edward Randolph, Energy Division Director of the uh, California Public Utilities Commission. So stay with us. We're going to be right back after a moment, okay? Everybody, thank you for waiting. I had to just get a, a little uh, humbling gesture here uh, with getting the right number to get through here. My next guest here on Ask a Leader is Edward Randolph, the Energy Division Director of the California Public Utilities Commission. Prior to serving in this capacity, Mr. Randolph was the California Public Utility Commission Director of Governmental Affairs and Senior Policy Advisor. He joined the California Public Utility Commission in 2010 from his position as Chief Consultant to the California State Assembly's Committee on Utilities and Commerce, a position he held since 2003 where he worked extensively on expanding California's use of renewable power, the creation of the California Solar Initiative and an energy efficiency legislation. Prior to that, he served as senior consultant to the assembly member Lloyd Levine as both chief of staff and senior consultant to uh, former assembly member Joe oh, Kensiamilla and uh, chief staff uh, to former assembly member Lou Papan. So Mr. Randolph earned his BA in political science from the UC San Diego and his law degree from the McGeorge School of Law. He comes to us today from San Francisco. Welcome to the show, Edward Randolph. Good morning. Thank you for having me. We are glad you're here because we are of the sort of the uh, San Onofre catchment utility area here are uh, wanting to know how the other shoe's going to drop and with all uh, that's going on and uh, with your huge range of public affairs background, you're you're the man of the hour. Well, let's, it's not meant to be broadsiding you, but I just have to know this in the way that I ask my transportation guests, I have to ask my utility guests, uh, what is the thermostat stat set at your uh, office right now? Um, well, I, I'm in San Francisco at a uh, foggy day, about 55 degrees, so my thermostat's not set at anything right now. Okay, okay. Do, and do, does your window open? Uh, no, it does not. Okay, so and it, so I won't get into how smart the building is. It, it doesn't have to be that smart in San Francisco with the really moderate, uh, moderated kinds of temperatures. So it's good to have you, and as uh, many of us, as I said, we really want to know where this shoe is going to drop uh, with a Santa Nofre, the billion-dollar update for San Onofre, including the four generators, which were supposed to last through the end of year 2022 as part of the package for San Onofre's renewal for a 20-year license from the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. So what was California Public Utility Commission's oversight role during that process amidst the misgivings that then-plant co-owners uh, San Diego Gas and Electric and the cities of Riverside and Anaheim had at that adaptation of the plant's generators? Yeah, the um, the jurisdictional roles of the state entities um, when it comes to the nuclear power plants is largely limited to overseeing the financing of the projects. Um, so considerations of engineering and safety of uh, safety are uh, within the scope of the National um, Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the Federal Nuclear Regulatory Commission, where the PUC's review of that was were the cost incurred. Um, prudent as compared to you know other projects the utility could have been um, 
um, going through at that point in time to provide electricity. So you were watching as uh, Mitsubishi Heavy Industries, they were contracting with Southern California Edison. You were, you were watching that, and you were probably mindful of, uh, okay, there's going to be some adaptations. These are larger than what Mitsubishi has done for the other plants around the country and in Japan. That, that had some probably some financial antenna wriggling in the space. The, um, no, actually, the, the, the financial uh, look that we had would have been uh, much more limited to what's the cost of putting the new um, generators in, the new steam generators in, and um, over the life of the steam generators, is that a prudent investment um, for the utility? Um, we did not look and would not have the jurisdiction to take a look at um, our engineering changes to the steam generators as compared to what the old steam generators were. Um, the, the the safest decision or the most cost-effective decision. That's that's not within our scope of purpose. Okay, well, I, you were clear in earlier, but I was just wondering if, if uh, there aren't financial considerations when the contract uh, takes a leap of faith in, uh, you know, adopting, adapting uh, a larger scale that I, hasn't a precedent. There, right. There, there are potentially financial considerations going forward. Um, you, the Public Utilities Commission has a proceeding open right now where we are looking at the full range of cost implications yes. from the leak in the steam generator and now the permanent closure of the plant um, to determine uh, who is responsible for those costs. Um, and the decisions to uh, redesign the steam generators um, will be an issue in doing a prudency review and were those decisions prudent. And if the, utility, if the Public Utilities Commission finds that it was not a prudent investment, um, then those expenses would be uh, borne entirely by the utilities that own the plant. So as you're then reviewing this, um, are there, let's, let's use this community radio opportunity for uh, letting listeners know where uh, public hearings are for more input. I know they can submit it online to you, and there will be, I imagine, additional hearings. Now, where can the public um, give their, uh, their best uh, in your considerations? Um, the best way to, to track the opportunities for um, public participation in it would be to go to the PUC's website, which is um, cpuc.ca.gov, and there are um, links on our homepage that take you to information on the um, San Onofre Nuclear Generating um, Station's uh, proceeding. Um, there will be, there have been um, public meetings in um, Orange County on this issue a few months ago. Yes. Um, there will be some public meetings in the San Diego region in the next uh, few months. I don't believe those have been scheduled yet, but they will be scheduled. Um, and as the proceeding goes on, there are a number of hearings that take place in San Francisco. Um, and so all of those places are opportunities for the public to participate in the, in the process. But no more hearings. They're closed as far as Orange County is concerned. Um, I wouldn't say they're definitively closed as far as Orange County. There's just nothing on the schedule right now. Okay. So... There could be that using the contact with you through the web that there may be a sort of persuading you to, to open it up some more since it is that's where it's located. So um, so now uh, you are your the Public Utility Commission's responsibility is deciding how to allocate the two billion dollar tab. I guess two billion dollars was estimated as roughly the amount that the generators were supposed to save the ratepayers. So what is going to be what is going to happen um, as you consider that? So there are a number of questions that need to be considered, and there's um, uh, potentially a lot more than $2 billion okay. um, in consideration. There's um, the cost of the generators themselves, the, the replacement steam generators. 
Um, there's um, ongoing cost of operation and maintenance at the plant. Um, there's the decommissioning cost of the plant, which will yes. change some due to the early retirement of the generators. Um, and there's the cost of the replacement power that the, um, the utility has had to uh, purchase while the, uh, the nuclear power plant is down. Um, so all of those costs are being tracked right now by the Public Utilities Commission. Um, and most of those costs have been um, put into accounts that are what we term subject to refund, meaning after the proceedings and the hearings of the PUC, if there's a determination that some of those investments were not reasonable, um, those costs which are being collected today um, would be refunded back to ratepayers. Wow. Well, I guess uh, inquiring minds are probably curious. Do you have like a sum beyond what that all of those costs added up are equal to? Um, there, there is a sum. Unfortunately, I don't have that at my oh. fingertips. I mean, that's uh, like I said, it's a, a number of different costs. Right. There's a monthly report they um, file with the Public Utilities Commission tracking those costs. And unfortunately, I don't have that at my fingertips before this call was made. Okay. Well, um, it's two billion plus plus three or four other different categories, so it, it's yeah. sizable. So it's a, it's a sizable amount of money. Oh wow! So and then you're, it's probably going to be a, a a sort of a difficult formula in terms of what kind of a repu- refund goes to the rate payers, but uh, that's. That's, uh, that's yet another expense is uh, calibrating all that. But that's all in, all of that is in-house with the commission? Or do you have to contract out for, for some of these kinds of things? Um, the, the determinations of, of what would go back, and that's all determination of what expenses were um, reasonable for the utilities that own the plant to make, um, that's a determination, that's a finding of fact that would be made by the public utility commissioners. Um, some of the calculations of what has been um, expended and what hasn't um, will be made by commission staff. Um, and then we do rely on some outside consultants to help provide advice on um, the reasonable operations of the power plant. And because these are public proceedings, mm-hmm. uh, we, we do take lots of input from um, expert stakeholder groups that participate as a commission. Okay. Well, for those joining us here on Ask a Leader, my guest is Edward Randolph, Energy Division Director of the California Public Utilities Commission, talking about decommissioning San Onofre and spreading a sizable tab around with various shareholders and or stakeholders, that is, and ratepayers among the stakeholders. So uh, what do you envision? I'm going to break it down. We've talked a little bit about the ratepayers in terms of uh, the fiscal sort of impact. What's the responsibility uh, fiscally for Southern California Edison? First, we'll talk about them generally. Um, I probably need a more specific question. Well, I do you... I I know this is a work in progress, though. But uh, S- Southern California Edison's uh, shareholders they will have some responsibility in this, since Southern California Edison let out the contract with the with the change in uh, the generator system. Um, again, that hasn't been determined by the commission, so I, I wouldn't want to prejudge no. the process at the Public Utilities Commission. But I think you're right that um, you know at the end there will be. Um, responsibilities for some of the cost that has um, occurred over the last few years, um, that historically if the plant were operating um, in a normal manner would be paid for by ratepayers that will now be paid for by shareholders, um, uh, plus additionally uh, recouping the investment that was made in the steam generators. Um, you know, it is likely that all or 
at least a large portion of that cost would now be borne by the utility um, shareholders and would no longer be uh, the responsibility of the ratepayers. And how about Mitsubishi's financial responsibility? Is it about the same answer? That, or is uh, yeah, it a different answer? On that one, since that is um, an issue that's being litigated in uh, the courts right now, um, it's unclear what their responsibilities would be. Um, our expectation at the Public Utilities Commission is that Southern California Edison will aggressively go over at, go go after Mitsubishi in court and try to um, get as much um, revenue from Mitsubishi as the courts will allow. So the the relationship there is that the contractor Southern California Edison is going to interact in, in their own legal uh, in the legal fashion with Mitsubishi. That's that's the loop there in terms of the financial liabilities. Yeah, that's correct. They are um, it is a contract between them and Mitsubishi, and so any legal matters there would be the decision of Edison um, and you know, their obligation to go after them in court. And is there a, a, a difference in what's the municipalities that are the co-owners? Like, will San Diego Gas and Electric, Riverside and Anaheim, will they have a different kind of a, will they have some kind of a liability or a, a lessened liability because of their earlier role in, in raising those questions about the adaptation of generators? Um, and I, I can't speak to um, um, Riverside financial liability in this matter at this point. We don't um, have uh, regulatory authority over them. Okay. Um, and so their financial responsibility hmm. on this, again, will, will largely be a conversation between them and Southern California Edison. Um, you know, there is also potential, though, to San Diego Gas and Electric um, that some of the cost of this that initially would have been uh, paid for by... San Diego ratepayers, if the plant were operating um, um, effectively and as initially planned, that now would be a shareholder cost on their part. Oh, okay. Um, but, uh, but Edison, as the the, the lead. operator of the plant, um, you know, they they will likely have more of um, financial responsibility than the other utilities. And just quickly, what would why is Riverside? Do you not have jurisdiction over them? Um, as a publicly owned u- utility, the, um, we don't oversee their activities. Um, we oversee the, the privately held, the investor-owned utilities, okay. um, utilities that are owned by municipalities or publicly elected boards um, or overseen by their city councils or their publicly elected boards. Okay. All right. Good. That's a helpful distinction. Well, I just want, with a little bit of time remaining, because I know you've got a meeting set up here shortly, uh, let's just turn to some of the energy-saving uh, the picture in general, what ratepayers uh, need to know about available incentives for conserving energy. Now, you've got a breakdown. There's already your, your bu- the business sector has a different kind of uh, incentive that is, I think, earlier implemented than the ratepayers, correct? In terms um, of in, hours of in the terms day. Of, you're talking about incentives to save yes. Um, electricity? Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, we, there are, um, you know, a massive range of programs out there in California right now that are in, intended to encourage energy efficiency efforts um, in the state. And they're ones that are focused at business. They're ones that are focused at, um, um, at residential customers. Um, for residential customers, the best place to go um, to find out about these details are your utilities website or a website that's called Energy Upgrade California, okay. which is energyupgradecalifornia.ca.gov. Um, and, and that will, um, um, you can go in there and type in your zip code and you can find out uh, what energy efficiency measures are available to you in your area. Okay, but generally, the, I guess it's the, the business rate payers are uh, earlier involved in that, the, the um, sort of tiered uh, 
the, the um, use. I know what you're asking now. Yeah, in terms of the, um, it's not tiered rates. It's um, it's uh, dynamic pricing or time of use rates, where okay. your your rates will vary um, during the day depending upon the cost of electricity at that point in day. And yes, um, large business customers um, have been on these type of rate plans for multiple years and. Um, starting this fall, um, it will be mandatory for smaller commercial customers to go on these similar tariffs. And they are designed to um, encourage conservation at peak times of the day uh, by giving you price signals that, um, that reflect the cost of delivering electricity then. I remember when the derivative market, certainly uh, in the beginning of the last decade, uh, it brought to my attention, I need to be doing my laundry when it's, you know, just before I floss my teeth at night. So it's a, uh, but that particular, that those variable uh, rates aren't in effect until how much longer for uh, the residential rate payer? Um, there isn't a timeline in place for the residential rate payers yet. Okay. Um, that is a, um, there are, um, uh, voluntary tariffs with your utilities, um, residential rate pairs can go on that are time-of-use rates. Um, it, it will take some time to implement those type of rates for residential customers, um, you know, due to the fact that uh, people will need to understand them ahead of time so that they can adjust their usage and they are comfortable with those rates um, over time. And, you know, the utilities and the Public Utilities Commission need to make sure they're designed in a way um, that are not overly punitive for activities that you can't shift um, from late in the afternoon um, to the evening or to folks who um, have medical needs or other needs that uh, prevent them from being able to shift their load. Well, thank you for that clarification and all the clarifications today. My guest, uh, as we close, this is Edward Randolph. He's the Energy Division Director of the California Public Utilities Commission, clearing a lot of air about what's what kind of shoes are dropping with respect to Santa Nofer Plant. Edward Randolph, thank you for being on Ask a Leader today. Uh, my pleasure. Thank okay. you for having me. Good to have you. We are now going to close out, and uh, my, uh, now we're going to um, the, talk about next week on Ask a Leader. We're going to have Reverend Canon Albert Ogle to talk about the developments in AIDS activism around the world and starting uh, how some folks are looking inward about that in Orange County and then beyond. After that, the web mistress Mariana Baker, I believe, will be also talking on Ask a Leader. She'll be coming back on how businesses can better use social networks. Sky's the limit, folks. So next, strolling in after me this morning, as always, is Senior George Rosales with his hat. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, new listeners included, for listening today.